Number 11. Managing for the Master. First Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to begin Lesson 11, Managing in Tough Times. The quarter is Managing for the Master till he comes. And Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator. Obi is going to offer our opening prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we invite your presence to be with us this morning as we discuss the lessons of living and managing in tough times. We ask for your Holy Spirit to guide our leader and give us insight into the expectations of Jesus for being the blessings that he wants us to partake in. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us that all that we have is due to a loving and generous God. Help us to be your servants and not servants to our worldly goods. May we share our blessings with others to enrich their lives and ours and lead us to heavenly places. In thy name I pray, amen. Amen, and thank you, Obi. So lesson number 11, managing in tough times. And if you look under number one, toils of life do take a lot of our daily focus with debts to pay, children to raise, property to maintain. It does take time and thought. And of course, we do need clothes, food, and shelter. Amid trying times when we need to lean on the Lord more than ever, there are some concrete steps based on biblical principles that we should follow. And so the purpose of the lesson is to discuss these steps. And as we mentioned last time, and we will mention it again, how do we distill, how do we draw these biblical principles? The memory text says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And of course, that deliverance looks quite different for different people, different occasions, and different times. So, look different for David, look different for the martyrs in the first century in early Christian church, or Middle Ages, or Adventist pioneers in 19th century, and for us living in 21st century. Now, Sunday's lesson is about putting God first, And we already had this text in Luke 12 in the previous lesson, and it's of course found in Matthew 6 about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest will be added unto you. Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, says, the person who does not seek the kingdom first does not seek it at all. Discuss. Do you agree with Richard Foster? Christian disciplines are the ways how God shapes our character. It has nothing to do with achieving salvation, gaining God's approval or grace. It has to do how we are shaped. And part of that is the discipline of simplicity. So let's go to Henry. I would like to ask Mr. Foster, what was he having in mind when he said, seek the kingdom first, as it is on the question on number two? What does that mean to seek the kingdom of God? and his righteousness. I think that it's maybe different depending on the circumstances that we are and the cultural background as well. Because I may have been the full intention of seeking the kingdom of God like Saul did, and he was actually further away from it, the more that he was trying to seek it until he actually forsake that seeking and understood who God was and not understood who God was, but at least was willing to know was he and that he had a different perspective and was willing to learn. And that's where his sickness began when he left his presuppositions aside and opened his mind to say, okay, God, tell me who you are, because it's evident that I am not seeking you. Okay, thank you. Rita? I want to 
if you are seeking, can you be doing something else at the same time? Or if you turn it around the other way, if you're doing something else, can you be seeking at the same time? His remark is in the context that in the culture in which we live, we concentrate more on outward lifestyle. So we constantly fear what others are going to think of us. And he says the result of that is that we crave things that we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want, we do not need, in order to impress people we do not like. And so people would not wear certain things or drive certain cars or behave in a certain way because they are afraid what would other people think of us. And in that context, he says, we need to distinguish between the inward reality and an outward lifestyle. And if we don't do that, we can easily get sidetracked into things like giving away all money, redistribution of the world's wealth, saving the planet, or whatever worthy goal you have. Ecological concerns, the poor, and other things are important, but they cannot be the first. I already told you before, there is a Swedish philosopher, Nick Bostrom, at Oxford University, who started the Future of Humanity project. And the purpose is, what are the big boxes? What are the big issues that humanity needs to tackle in order to survive? And of course, unequal distribution of wealth is one of them. But basically, Foster says, the person who doesn't seek the kingdom first doesn't seek it at all. As worthy other concerns may be, the moment they become the focus of our efforts and our lives, they become idolatry. Sean? Yes, thank you for clarifying some of that context there, because the first thought that came to me was, if you are not seeking, can you still be receiving? And my personal experience and my observational experience is yes, that you can be not directly seeking, but certainly receiving all the while. I have my own personal experience to account for that. And I have the experience of many other people and very close friends of mine who to this day are quite intellectually atheist, and they are, in my observation, certainly receiving. Now, the context of Mr. Foster here seems to be directly Christian, and so I would expand that in my commentary here. I would expand that to include God is responsible for bringing the kingdom to all people outside of the Christian context as well, and there are various ways for individuals to demonstrate that they are indeed seeking a kingdom that they don't know anything about. And they are indeed receiving a kingdom that they don't yet know anything about. So my experience has been different. My observation has been different as well. Yes, you can receive by God's grace and goodness without directly seeking. Okay, thank you. Larry? Christ was constantly commenting, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven is like. There's many of the ideas that he's giving, and my concern in one regard when we read something like what this gentleman wrote is the immediate contemporary Christian thinking is, how do we cure social ills? 
or even worse, only begin to think about the future and getting to heaven, as opposed to if eternal life begins here, then heaven also has to begin here. And Christ is right that the kingdom of heaven is now, it's here among you. So in looking at that, I think we need to have a completely different understanding of what it means to seek this kingdom. And what does it mean to have a completely different understanding? The invitation or the injunction is in the context of the story from Second Chronicles 20. Now, all of you know verse 20. You have heard sermons on that one. As people set out for the desert of Tekoa, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. At this stage, the two tribes are all that is left of Israel. And what does it say? What do they should listen to? Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. In other words, putting God first. Now, you know the story. Terry, can we start reading from verse 1? After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Already they are at Hazazon Tamar, that is, Engedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the towns of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? In your hand are power and might, so that no one is able to withstand you. Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? They have lived in it, and in it have built you a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and save. See now the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. They reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession that you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment upon them? For we are powerless against this great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So how would you feel if you know a huge army of a number of nations is approaching against the two small tribes? Militarily, you don't have much chance. And then you hear the supreme commander, the commander-in-chief of your army saying, and we do not know what to do. I have no clue how to deal with this situation. Would you be encouraged? Would you be positive? Or would you feel, "Uh uh-oh, we are in serious trouble here. If even our king doesn't know what to do, this doesn't look good. All right, verse 14, where does the solution come from? Why does he mention the prophets? Why do the Adventists like to quote verse 20? So let's read verse 14 and on. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, 
son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeiel, son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the middle of the assembly. He said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley before the wilderness of Jeruel. This battle is not for you to fight. Take your position, stand still, and see the victory of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. So the prophet provides some intelligence. And by the way, this is their military strategy. These are the places where they will come. And the message from the Lord is, you do not need to fight this battle. Just take up your position, stand firm, and see what God is going to do. And in this context comes the response. Verse 18. Then Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets. When he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy splendor as they went before the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And verse 22, what was the result of this strategy? Putting the choir into the front line, into the first line. As they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the Ammonites and Moab attacked the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them utterly. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And so they all killed each other because this alliance, somehow they could not distinguish the uniforms, who is who. And instead of fighting Israelites, they were fighting each other. Until verse 24, the Israelites came, looked, and behold, only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one escaped. And so they praised the Lord for the great victory. Now, as you looked under number one, what are concrete steps based on biblical principles that help you in the time of defeat? Difficulty from this. Obviously, the lesson is not send the choir into the first line, because later when another army comes and Jeremiah says, and do not rely on the fact that the Lord is going to rescue you, that the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is in our midst, says you are going to hit your nose, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, no amount of choir singing is going to reverse that. So obviously that's not the lesson. Larry. Interesting, wonderful story, uh, and yet the whole emphasis is misplaced. So why does the king wait until he is at this point to have everybody that could help him come give him counsel? And it would seem to me, since we're trying to understand Christian living, the principle, if we apply this direct story, it means to go off, get yourself in trouble. And then I call for Daniel and say, Daniel, will you and the elders come please help me get out of this mess? Wouldn't it have been better to have lived in connection with God and maybe had a bit of 
understanding so that when they're confronted with this, they already have an idea. I'm just concerned that we're going to get the wrong takeaway here. Hopefully we won't. But how do you process a story like this? What do you think? How do you feel that? What are we supposed to take from this? What's the take from this story? Over the years when I read it, I read it in the context as exactly as it's written. As I've gotten older and my understanding or thinking has changed, I don't know that it's gotten any better, but it has changed. I see flaws in this, as I had mentioned, and I think that in my personal life, the idea of keeping a point, I get up every morning and do meditation and read scripture and and other religious things to get my mind and my body get prepared for what I have to do for the day. And I didn't always do that. And I will say that the process of doing that has changed how I live my life. Some people may think it's better or not, but from we're trying to understand Christian living and seeking the kingdom of God first, it does not appear that Jehoshaphat sought the kingdom of God until after he was in a predicament. So my suggestion is the wrong takeaway. The story should be, in my opinion, had he have done this before, the entire story would have been different. Now, the outcome could have been the same, but he wouldn't have been at this perplexed moment. Anyway, that was my point of making the comment that I did. So obviously, the story is not a recipe for a military strategy. When the Israelites faced the first walled city of the promised land, Jericho, they marched around it quietly without saying a word. And on the final day, they blow the trumpet. Probably as far as physics is concerned, it would be not easy to argue that what brought the walls down was their shout or the trumpet. So obviously there is a supernatural earthquake that brings the walls down. Yet that's a unique strategy. And here is the problem that you and I have. How do you preach or how do you learn a lesson from a historical event described in a historical book because historical books by nature are descriptive. They describe this and this has happened. Now, they are not Aesop's fables that you are supposed to take a moral lesson out of it. And if you say that you should walk in silence, is that the lesson? No. When they go move on to the next city, I, they use a different strategy. When Hezekiah has a problem that he gets an arrogant letter from an enemy king, he decides to read it to the Lord because obviously the Lord doesn't know what's in the letter. So he reads the letter to him so that the Lord knows what is in this arrogant letter. And then God says, his angel and the angel takes care of the Assyrian army, problem solved. But you have the situation during the Maccabees that the Lord doesn't send the angel. The northern kingdom goes into Assyrian captivity. Samaria is destroyed. Now God delivers them in the time of Jehoshaphat. You could argue because they put the choir in the first line, so they didn't have to fight. Yet, when Nebuchadnezzar comes, the Babylonian soldiers do not kill themselves. They kill one-third of population of Judah, destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, destroy the palace, and the people who survived, one-third of the population is taken back to Babylon, and one-third is left there so that the earth does not become, or the country does not become completely desolate. So, Just by giving you a few examples of historical battles, you see that there was a different strategy used at a different time. Now, the heading for this is putting God first. 
And in this group, all of us agree that's what we need to do. My question is, how do you do it in your specific situation? And how helpful is to quote stories from the historical books, which happen once, uh, which are one-off. Interestingly, God did not choose to repeat that strategy or that story repeatedly. Or do you know another story where using the choir was the best military strategy? Lou? I'm really thankful that God doesn't use the same method over and over. He's full of surprises that are always in the best interest of the situation, whatever's going on. Larry was saying about it would have been better if it happened this way. But again, God takes us where we're at. And even though it might have been better if they had done it differently, they didn't do it differently. So God works in spite of our mistakes and works with us and brings about the right conclusion. Yeah, thank you. Henry? I would like to put this story in context. Jehoshaphat is the next king after Ahab. Ahab was not seeking God at all. He was just absolutely not following the advice from the prophets. He was just absolutely denying God. It's not that he was an atheist or agnostics. He didn't care about God. And so Jehoshaphat comes, and if we go back to the beginning of chapter 19, he receives the visit of a prophet, and he's being told that there are problems on the way that he's ruling the kingdom, but that he has beginning to seek the Lord, that he is appointing judges. This is very interesting that he needs to give advice to these judges that he's appointing. They say, hey, if you're going to be judging, forget about the old ways. Don't do all of the bad stuff that was done in the past. Now you are going to do it rightly because being judged is not about judging, but doing it in the proper way. So that's the whole context. And then they have this big problem. And for probably the first time in so many years, instead of the king saying, let's go and shoot this uncircumcised and do all of this or go with the false prophets, he stops and there is a prophet and there is listening first. So to me, that's the point that I can take for me right now. This is not a military strategy. This is not the way that you deal. The steps that Jehoshaphat took, but how can I apply it to me is, A, use Proverbs 3, 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Seek God. Seek the light. You are not so brilliant. That will be the way that I approach it. Excellent. Excellent. And the only thing I would add, and seek a fresh revelation from God. Do not rely on something that God did in the past blindly. Do not rely blindly on something that God did in the past, because God might be ready to do something new, something different. Remember when the disciples feel that these Samaritans have not been sufficiently welcoming to them and treating them as they feel they deserve to be treated as emissaries of Jesus, of this rabbi, but the Samaritans do not see them that dignified. They say, should we call the fire from heaven as Elijah did? And Jesus has to tell them in Luke 9, actually, you have no clue on what kind of mission you are. God has moved on. God chooses to work now in a different way than he worked 700 years ago during the times of Elisha. Not everything that he blessed or used in the past, he is going to use again. 
So there was one strategy with Jericho, there was another strategy with Ai, there was another strategy during the time of Hezekiah, there is another strategy during the time of Jehoshaphat, there will be another strategy during the time of Jeremiah, just surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, he's not such a beast, he's a nice guy, and if you fight him, you will die in the process, but if you don't fight him, you can survive, you can live in Babylon, and you can learn something, a lesson there, and be still a blessing. So listen to the fresh word from the Lord. Nancy? Another thing that's helped me in this story and encouraged me is in my life, in my childhood home, growing up, and even our history together, Bob and I, mistakes have been made and it has caused suffering, you know, loss of money, loss of, for my parents, it was a loss of their marriage. And in this story has been encouraging that God, when mistakes are made, like Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect, but he was willing to work with God and come back and take advice and take the current advice of what God said for now for him to do and to come back and be willing to listen and learn that God's not going to condemn me for my mistakes. He's going to help me if I want the help and help restore the situation. These stories give me that courage not to give up, but to come back. Very good. Thank you, Nancy. Nice experience. Larry? I really like the comments and the ideas that God doesn't abandon, that wherever we are and as we develop humans, individuals, and as a group, he adapts how he reaches to us. But what I admire in this story is the part we haven't got to, verse 29. And I was reading it in the New English Bible, and it commented that the dread of God fell upon the nations. And fortunately, I had a different version to also read, which was the Berkeley Bible. And it said, again, the awe of God came upon the kingdoms. And I really didn't understand the word awe until, I think I've shared this in the past, I've recently been reading Abraham Heschel, God in Search of Man, and he has an entire segment on just awe and that it really means the worship. So it's a much more profound, the awe, that use of that word and how the surrounding nations, it was a transformational moment in how the nations understood God, not just what he did for the children of Israel, but God's reaching to also the non-Christian world or the other people besides his followers, that they understood something about God that wasn't apparent to them before. Good. Thank you. So Jehoshaphat says, oh, we have been nice to them. They are not nice to us, Lord. Please deal with the situation. And as Henry put in the chat, God did not wait until Jehoshaphat was perfect. His response and reaction is pretty self-centered. Of course, you can understand that in the distress. He's the new king. He's afraid for himself, for the nation. But the fact that he started seeking God was enough for God to prove to him that I am on your side, I care about you. And he came up with a strategy that resolved the situation. God would come with a different strategy later, in different eras, in different times, in different places, in different cultures. And our job is to put God first and listen to him and be willing to hear a fresh revelation from God, not only to rely on how God worked in the past. Remember, Moses got into trouble because the first time God said to him, hit the rock. The second time he said to him, talk to the rock. And he relied on the way God worked in the past and he got himself into trouble 
because God sometimes wants to work in a new way. And we need to be open for new ways how God wants to work in our time. Henry? Just want to make an initial comment for clarity that it doesn't mean that all of my problems are going to be solved if I seek God first from my perspective. That the enemy army is not going to be self-defeated, nothing of that nature. It only means that I can rely that God is with me because so many times, even when Jesus was in the worst trial, that did not prevent him to go and suffer the people spitting on him and all the atrocities that were done to him. So that's something that we need to keep uh, balance out, that it doesn't mean that everything is going to be resolved the way that I am expecting, as to say that if I seek God first, everything is going to be rose and fragrance. So it's not a way to manipulate God or circumstances so that my will is done. All right, Sean, and we need to move on. Yes, let's hope that by the time this segment is aired, the Christians in Ukraine will have an opportunity to look back at the new fresh way that God will release them from the terror that they are under right now. I'm a little troubled by our settling into this means by which God will address the difficulties among the believers, because I think that he's interested to settle difficulties among everybody who are not believers as well. Nor do I tend to lean on some of the solutions that we have been discussing here today. I think there are so many circumstances and factors that we humans bring that God has his hands quite tied. So whether it's evil nations coming upon other peaceful nations in our biblical story, but also in our current affairs, it's way too messy for me to suggest simple solutions that even God himself can deliver. We tend to mess up even his best efforts. All right, thank you. Uh, let's move on to the next story. Uh, let's start with reading Exodus 30, verses 11 and 12. So Exodus 25 and onwards are the instructions regarding the sanctuary. Remember 25.8 is, uh, let them build me the sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. And then you have the instructions about different furniture, different parts of the sanctuary. And in chapter 30, you have the altar of incense in verses 1 to 10. And then let's read verses 11 and 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, when you take a census of the Israelites to register them, at registration, all of them shall give a ransom for their lives to the Lord, so that no plague may come upon them for being registered. Okay, now let's read Second Samuel 24, verse 4 verses. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, count the people of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army who were with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and take a census of the people, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God increase the number of the people a hundredfold, while the eyes of my lord the king can still see it. But why does my lord the king want to do this? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to take a census of the people of Israel. And let's now read First Chronicles 21. 
Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report so that I may know their number. But Joab said, may the Lord increase the number of his people a hundredfold. Are they not, my lord, the king, all of them, my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. Okay, compare and contrast. So in Torah, in Exodus 30, you have a provision how you make a census. If you do it, this is the way to do it. In 2 Samuel, it says the Lord inspired or incited David to do it. And once he done it, he has punished him for it. And then in 1 Chronicles, it says it was actually the Satan who incited David to take the census, not the Lord. How do you make sense of this? And what are the biblical principles for a time of managing in tough times from the story? Aaron. I don't remember that they were going through tough times during that time, but the principle either way would be to put their trust in God because maybe David's feeling pretty good about the kingdom or he's not sure. Either way, it's arrogant or departing from God to say, okay, let's see how strong we are rather than like in the beginning, he said, I've got this because God's with me. Speaking to Saul about going out against Goliath, he's like, God's been with me. He's going to be with me. And so turning from the source of their strength to, okay, let's see how strong we are. And when we do that in our life, we fall on our face so many times. All right. Larry says in the chat, it's the story that arrogance brought tough times. If you go to First Chronicles 21 and turn the page to chapter 20, you read about the capture of Rabbah, you read about the war with Philistines, they even are successful against the giants which are left there. And in that context, David comes with a brilliant idea. I am going to number Israel. And of course, then in verse 5, chapter 21, Joab reported the number to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. However, he did not include Levi and Benjamin because he didn't agree with this. So he skewed the numbers anyway. And the lesson is... If David thinks that because of his military strategy or because what he does, Israel now is blessed. So under Moses, it was 600,000. Now it's 1,100,000, so almost twice. As the Chronicles gives you the perspective from the heavenly camera, while Samuel is the historical perspective, how the historian would record it, Chronicles says there was something devilish behind this thinking. There was something satanic, and this arrogance does not pay off. Nancy? I have a question for you. I've always wondered during a census, what was it like for the people? If you could help create the setting, were they aware of what the king was doing? Did this have an effect on them? Like in the setting, did they know? They grieved badly for his decision. What was going on around him at this time? And Joab, who wasn't really a very nice, godly man, he seemed to be quite alarmed. And so, how aware were people of this principle? 
Yeah, so it's interesting that the military general is more in touch with God and says, this is ridiculous, this is abhorrent idea, I don't agree with this, and even distorts the final number for David, so it's not helpful and useful to him at all. And of course, the people see it only as a way of taxation. Yeah, so he wants to know how many of us there are so that he can collect more taxes and fight his wars. And as Samuel predicted, he's going to use the best boys, the strongest man in his army to fight for his interests. So, yet, as the Bible shows, when you have bad leaders, everybody pays the price. So finally, some of them die Yeah, as a result of this. Henry? I think that to make a, an analogy with today, what David was doing was opening his bank statement every day, every morning, and looking at that, oh, see how much I have. And next day, he wanted to see if he had more. He was just basically checking on his statement online every single minute, how many more am I am getting? How much more can I do with this? And this is what calls his general alarm. Hey, what else have you wanted to get done? I mean, we can live in peace. Take that instead of looking what else we can do. And if I will be a father of a young man, a young son, that is achieving the age to go to the army, and now I know that the king is sensing every new guy to enroll them in the army, that will be absolutely distressing because this is the king trying to get as many as he wants as soon as they are ready to go because he wants just power. And obviously, all of those victories, all of that success, military success that David had was not because he was good. It was because God has given it to him. That's the way that I make sense of that story. Yep. In the book of Esther, it speaks about King Ahasuerus, who can't sleep at night, so he calls his servants. Can you read to me? Interestingly, the king cannot read, so the servants need to read to him. And so which book do you want us to read? And it's not Encyclopedia Britannica, it's not a dictionary, you know, or something so that he learns. Or just read from the book about me, about the great deeds of my accomplishments. And so here, David, the man according to God's heart, the king of Israel and Judah, is on the similar level as the pagan king Ahasuerus. Read me the book about me. We need to hear before I fall asleep how great I am, what great victories I have accomplished. Bob? Actually, the thing I was going to mention is David being a man after God's own heart, what would happen that would make him forget God? Because it seemed like he had a prophet around. And if he's close to God, it seems like he would realize if he was starting to get egotistical and that sort of thing. But maybe prosperity affected him. So he would forget momentarily because his close relationship with God is how he rose from the beginning. He had to really rely on God if things were tough. Maybe it's a lesson that when prosperity comes, that's the most difficult time, perhaps. Yep. And sometimes you don't even need a prophet like Jehoshaphat. A hardened general will do. A hardened general is more sensitive and more in tune with God's will than the shepherd boy who was elected because of his sensitivity towards sheep. Michael? One of the conundrums in this story is the fact that we read through it, we come to what David wanted to do doesn't work, God disapproves it, and you think, well, this is a great model for us to follow that we won't ever do this again. But the history of Israel and the history of mankind since that time is just the opposite. We keep making the same mistake. And I wonder, what is it about humanity that has such 
poor insight as to its own history. Yeah, okay. And Rita's put David was taking the glory for the victories, but it was the generals who accomplished it, not him, because he stayed in Jerusalem. And of course, if you read the story of Bathsheba, you know that previously he got into trouble because he stayed at home and was looking at the roofs instead of fighting with his generals, but he let them fight the battles. So once again, the story repeats itself that he stays at home. His mind is not engaged and he comes with crazy ideas that just inflate his ego. All right, let's go to 2 Peter 3. Can we learn some biblical principles for difficult times from this one? So the first story was that when Jehoshaphat makes an attempt to put God first, God delivers. The second story tells you that when David was not seeking God first, he gets himself into trouble. 2 Peter 3, starting from verse 3. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact, that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire. And the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? Okay, so what biblical principles can you get from this for the tough times? Obviously, the text says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, verse 10, and if everything is decaying and will be dissolved, what sort of people you ought to be, leading the lives of holiness and godliness, earnestly desiring for the coming of God. P.S. Notice, hastening is not a good translation of the Greek word. The second coming does not depend on what we do, so it creates a wrong impression. The Greek word can be translated as earnestly desiring, earnestly wishing for something. Do you think the rich fool was earnestly desiring for the second coming after the plentiful harvest? Or was earnestly desiring that the day of the Lord would not come for the next 100 years like a thief on him? So Peter says, if the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief, what kind of people, what sort of life you need to be leading so that it's a life of holiness, distinctiveness. Remember back the call of Abraham, call of Israel being brought out of Egypt so that you are a different nation, different community and God likeness so that you eagerly, earnestly desire the second coming. Henry. 
First of all, I would like to call attention that Peter mentions here that everything is done from water and scientists today will say, no, it's from carbon. But my comment in regards to this is, is this verse provides room or risk danger for abuse that if we don't plan our giving and our financial resource, taking into account that the end is coming soon and to haste the kingdom of heaven by doing so, I should be afraid or worry, concerned that all things are going to come to destruction from fire. Is that the, the motivator that is intended to be used in this? That in order to escape the fire, I better start planning my giving in consonance to haste, quotation marks, the kingdom of God. All right. And in this context, excellent remark, Henry. Let's have a look at Revelation 13. And you know what is there in verses 11 to 17. So this is Thursday lesson. We jump over Wednesday and we will end up on that note on Wednesday. So you can see that if you are careful about your thinking and biblical principles, you can learn the lesson from Jehoshaphat, you can learn the lesson from David, and you can learn the lesson from Peter. Although, as Henry reminded us, it's better if fishermen do not comment on physics because they are not going to get it right. But he's the child of his time, and so he sees it the way he does. And Revelation 13 tells you that in the context of a Roman Empire and the economy that is based on extraction that the Roman Empire practices, powerful regimes are going to use economical and political power as a way of oppression. And so the time will come when people cannot buy, people cannot sell, because this is used as a way of enforcing certain attitudes, certain worldview, certain perspective. And so when the rich fool says, now I have stored up everything for many years and nothing can surprise me, so I have dealt with my anxiety and with my fear, you don't have to die of heart attack that night, but it might easily happen that you will live in times when you're stored up goods are not going to be any good to you because you can't use them because it depends on the fact that somebody allows you to buy somebody allows you to sell and you are not going to find hoarding riches as a way of alleviating your worries and your fears all right and let's now go to wednesday's lesson and that is matthew 6:24 and that will be the most helpful biblical principle that Jesus himself brings on the Sermon on the Mount, which is the charter of his kingdom. He is starting a new type of community. And what does he say in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So can you see what Jesus is saying here? That if you have a split personality, you are going to hate one and love the other, yet you are devoted to the one that you hate and you despise the one that you love. Can you see in the text what's going on? So you hate the one and love the other. And what happens with the one that you hate? You are devoted to that one. And what happens with the other that you love? You despise. So you hate, yet you are devoted to it. You love, yet you despise the other. Can you see the paradox there and the contradiction that you become a slave of something that you don't want, that you don't enjoy? You are torn in all sides 
And Jesus says, and this is what happens when? This is what happens when you don't put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or when you don't strive for his kingdom, as we had in Luke 12. So what does it mean to put God and his righteousness first? He says, you cannot serve God and wealth at the same time. So it's either or. Notice how Jesus, and I don't know how your Bible portrays this, but many Bibles put the Greek word mammon with a capital M as a juxtaposition with God. So God is a person and mammon becomes a person for you and they are in a mutual conflict. It's a relationship between a servant and the master. Mammon or wealth or capital can be a master in the same way that God is, except it's not that kind. But wealth or capital can be your personal master, tries to be like God, tries to master you. It has spiritual power over you. And why? Because you attribute certain characteristics to the money and it becomes an idol. It becomes something holy for you. Only God is supposed to be holy, but money becomes holy. And so, as I say, under number six, so in certain context, you don't speak about money. You avoid it. You can speak about business, about love, about justice, about wisdom. But when the other person brings the topic of money, it's socially inappropriate. We don't talk about this. It's embarrassing. It tells you there is a sense of sacredness about it. And of course, then there is another <laughs> extreme that money becomes the magical solution, the silver bullet. If only the question of money was resolved, all the problems of the working class, of all humanity, of the whole world would be resolved. And so what is the solution? Jacques Ellul says the solution is profanation of money. You need to deprive money or mammon or capital or wealth of its sacred character. You cannot look upon it as something sacred. You need to destroy the power it has over you. You need to bring money back to its role as material instrument. Larry? It's interesting that the discussion only goes into money. If it were true that you could serve two masters at the same time, polygamy would work. Or polyandry. Exactly. Multiple angries. So there you go. That's even better. I like that. <laughs> so if you were to walk into a library or a bookstore and pick up any kind of self-help book, and one of the original ones is Think and Grow Rich. And the concept of all of these books is, and if you listen to Denzel Washington's tape that was mentioned earlier, and I did during the break, he's very pointed. You have to be dedicated to what you're doing. So the concept of dedication to the thing that motivates you, what are you willing to give up being somewhere else for? And that's the focus of what you're at. So I think the intensity here is not just focusing on money, but it is truly not possible to focus money because it is a very self-consuming, actually all-consuming issue that leaves no room for anything else. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Very perceptive. Karen? I was thinking that when we have a mature understanding of God's kingdom, we see it as this place you've described of incredible abundance and generosity. And when we enter into this abundant kingdom living ourselves, then everything has different values and we can freely share God's incredible generosity that we have received to bless others as we have been blessed. And I find that as we do that, we've actually become like the recipients of even more blessings. There doesn't seem to be deprivation in that space because God is just so abundant. 
And the research shows that those who give generously and joyfully are far happier than those who hold on to what they've got and accumulate it and don't want to give. I think in some way, giving to others says an incredible thank you to God for what he has blessed us with. It says that we love you and we trust you to provide and we can just share abundantly because we've received abundantly. And then just everything takes on a different sense of value in that abundant kingdom space. And we don't get so concerned about what this value is or those sorts of things. We get just into a place of abundance and blessing others. Yes. So that 90% with God's blessing stretches further than 100% without God's blessing. Mm. Because you are part of this kingdom of abundance. Yeah. Well said. Henry? I think that it all comes to the type of God that we believe he is. Maybe about six, seven years ago, in one of these discussions, you brought up a quote that you can safely assume that you have created God in your own image, when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. And I can just paraphrase that, which is, we can create God in our own image when it turns out that God loves the same things that you do. And that may be also the equivalent with money and the emphasis that we do on this when we understand that seeking the kingdom of God has to do with qualities of that king, with the laws that regulate that king, and the type of society that is built with those rules and regulations. And that was Jesus' invitation when he was talking about the kingdom of God is at hand, is among you. It's a type of a community that is completely different than the one that we are looking for, to get more for ourselves or to give for a specific organization only because this is the one that I am part of. But to remember that this kingdom is to bless all people, your neighbor, anybody that is next to you. So here's the concluding question. What can we do or how can money lose its seductive pulling power? How can we achieve this profanation of money, uprooting the sacred character of money, as Jacques Ellul called this? How can money become once again a material instrument, but not an idol, not something sacred, something that has power over us? Because if you believe the false story, if you believe the wrong, remember how Adam and Eve become under the power of the serpent because they believe his story. And if you believe this story that money is going to deal with your fears, with your anxiety, it's going to assure your happiness. Jesus says, you are not what you own. Human life is more than just, if you have this and that, then you will be happy. If you believe that, you have imbibed a false narrative. So how can we make sure that money loses this pulling power that it has over us? Larry? When Christ was talking about the rich young ruler, and he was suggested that he give away everything and come follow him, it's interesting that the story wasn't an old man that came to him. And where I'm going with this is if you learn this principle, the concept we're discussing here at Ashley's age, and not wait until you're Bob Zipperick's and my age, it's much easier to deal with. And by the time you get to this age, you understand that the giving away, it's like the forest for a tree. You can have a tree that only takes care of itself. But if the tree drops seeds and the seeds flourish and those seeds grow to other trees, a forest is created from a tree that gives. If a tree doesn't give, 
it's only going to be one tree, and that's all that it ever is. And the ensuing years between are much better lived, it appears. I chose not to live them that way. I have friends who did live them, what I'm going to say correctly. And in hindsight, they do appear to have had a better life than I did. Okay, thank you. Ashley? I don't think this is the full solution, but I think one aspect of it is just looking at the, I don't know if the right word is quality of the lives of the people that have the most money and how destructive that can become (laughs) to happiness. I can't remember the exact statistic on the research that has been done on, I think, happiness and contentment. But after a certain point, the amount of happiness you continue to accrue after a certain income level since it taper off. So there's a balance between like meeting your needs and then excess. And that excess doesn't continually bring like more and more joy and satisfaction. And I think contentment, but that can be maybe hard to see for people that have always maybe been underprivileged or have never been to that point where they feel like they've gotten their basic needs met. But I think if you have been privileged, you know this to be true, that having a bunch of (laughs) excess money beyond what your needs are isn't what makes life meaningful and will ultimately make you feel fulfilled. So that's one piece of, I think, wisdom that is important to think about when you're maybe feeling a little too attached to money. (laughs) Yep. If you are attached, it will have the pooling power. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Rolando? I believe if we focus in the purpose, purpose to me is the main driver for this. Some years ago, I worked with somebody that had graduated from Stanford and then got his master in Harvard. And one day he invited me to meet with his colleagues that they had graduated from Harvard. To me, it was a very interesting experience. I was in Dallas with those guys. There were like six of them, half a dozen of them. But it was so much intensity in that room. They were very intense, very strong, with so much energy. But their purpose was driven to money. And everybody was making over $500,000 a year. And you can see that intensity, the way they talk, the way they do. And to me, it's like, can you imagine what we could accomplish if we just have a different purpose? Just changing the purpose, but maintaining the same intensity, maintaining the same sharpness, the same energy, and the same just with integrity, and having the purpose that Jesus had and just shared the best of God. That will be so much that we could accomplish, whether it's with money or even without the money, but just having that purpose that is focused in something different than what accomplishing the money or material things. That's what I believe purpose makes the difference. Okay, thank you. So, if you summarize it, what is it that Jesus brought into the storyline? What is it that helps us to see the things from a different perspective? What is it that will bring that money lose its seductive pulling power over us? How would you summarize it? Robert? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Yes, yes, that's how we started the lesson. So, how would you change that into small? things. How does that happen on a practical level? Because as you surely know, there are many people who claim to be seeking the kingdom of God, yet they are trying to serve the capital, the wealth, the mammon, as Jesus called it. Alan? I think often you have to realize that the first step is 
the actual realization, right? And you think, and Peter, about the words about fire, I think of how often in Scripture, the emergency measures that are used to wake people up, right? You want to hear it. And I suspect the first thing to realize is that you can't serve two masters, and that's why Jesus says that. But until somebody actually realizes it, it's impossible to make a choice. If I think about like my weight, I need to lose weight. When I get that individual ice cream, I don't do a mental thing that says that one ice cream is the thing here. It's not until I really realize it that I can change. And I think for the majority of the world, they don't realize that there's a polar choice that they have to make. Yeah, thank you. So what is it that God is trying to teach the Israelites? Remember, they get out of Egypt, out of slavery, being part of the economy of extortion, part of economy of scarcity. The first thing they do when they see free food, manna, what do they do? They start hoarding. And so what is God teaching these people? Guys, your self-centeredness, your selfishness is going to kill you. With this mindset, you can't be happy. And the solution for that, if you look under number eight, what is the solution of profanization of money, to lose its holy, holy character so that it's not an idol that you serve? Jesus says, life of man does not consist of hoarding wealth. Sherry? I think hoarding and some of the other aspects are from fear. And I think it's a way of meeting needs that one has deep inside of comforting oneself or of meeting needs fearful about the future. And I think part of the answer to that is getting acquainted with God and then day by day watching him and seeing what he's like, seeing his great love and his care for us which then helps us see in a wider view. We're not so intent on being able to survive. We're able to look at a bigger picture and see other people, see their needs, understand more about the world. We're not confined to such a small little picture when our fears are met and when love is surrounding us. It helps us be like him and see a bigger world and bigger needs. Yes, thank you. So the key is giving. You need to be giving, and you need to be giving significantly. So what is it that God is teaching? There is a famous story, probably, I don't know how it translates culturally. Chris Tarrant was the TV man who was in the UK. He was the man on the who wants to be the millionaire. He was the man who asked the question. And he tells the story how there was a beggar in London, and he gave him five pounds. He decided, okay, I'm going to be nice. And he gave this guy five pounds, so about eight dollars. And the guy looked at him and said, actually, you did not give me that much. And it's this idea that, okay, if he is the one who distributes hundreds of thousands and one million on the TV, he didn't give me much. Of course. So instead of appreciating what I get, you feel a sense of entitlement or that he could have given me more. Now, probably, yeah, he was paid well for taking part in the TV show. But God says to Israelites, if you don't give away, the money will have power of you. And you need to give away significantly. Because when you give, in the Bible, it's a sign of consecration to God. When you give away, you say, my security is not from money, my security is from God. It represents God's grace breaking into this world. And you imitate God, the creator, who constantly gives. So do you remember how much did the Israelites give? It's not a difficult question. Yes, so they did give 10%. But the 10% is what they give for the sanctuary. And then they give 10% for the community so that they rejoice 
There is this restoration idea of the community that the neighbor and those less fortunate need to be blessed as well. And then every third year, they change the tithe into commodity and they are supposed to have joy and rejoice and invite the widow, the orphan, the foreigners and the less fortunate and have a good time together. Now, here's the question. What's the New Testament model? Now that we are part of God's kingdom, that we know how generous God is. Give 100%. If you give 100%, then (laughs) what do you live on? (laughs) Yes. But uh, yeah, I understand, John, what you mean. Yeah. So the New Testament model is you keep what you need to live on and you give the rest away. You cannot give less than 10%, but you can give away more. And because you know how generous God is, Karen put it so well in the chat that Jesus gave freely and God is extravagant with us. Look at his ministry. And so the New Testament model is you keep what you need to live on and the rest is to bless someone else. Now, different countries, different economies, different situations, life stages, etc. It has different application. But we who are recipients of greater blessings than the Old Testament people, we have a greater responsibility. And so that's the New Testament model. Henry? I would agree with John. Give 100%. But giving 100% is not talking about money. It's not talking about possessions. But it's giving all that you can in any area. Maybe money, maybe time, maybe a hug, but not restraining. When I start thinking about myself and how to meet my needs first, then I am not open to give 100%. Yes, and Henry, you put also a good chat that Israelites were not supposed to pick up all the harvest. They were supposed to leave something for the foreigners and the poor people and the widows and the orphans. So it's not that I get as much as I can. It's that I remember the community. I remember the less fortunate. I remember those who need also. So Wesley said, earn all you can. Give all you can and save all you can. Or earn all you can, save all you can, and then give all you can. And it's a good summary. Yes, Karen. But even if we don't have money, we have other things that we can give freely, generously, like our help, our time, our listing, our smiles, our hugs, as people have mentioned. And these can be blessings so much as well. Yeah, expertise, support, a kind word. I attended this week a funeral of a person and heard amazing stories how people have been blessed by being invited into the family, how people have been blessed by a kind word when the person said, I see a potential in you, how they told the story, how it changed their whole life just because someone they looked up to said, I see a great potential in you, and how their whole lives have been changed by giving praise and acknowledgement. Sherry? I think even in this, there are some dangers to watch for. We know in Jesus's day, there were many who were so very careful to give as much as they could and very proud about it and watching that other people would do the same. And I think it doesn't need to go those directions. We don't need to decide for other people how they give and what they give. I think each person individually knows together with God, how they can give best. I love the ways that Karen mentioned and that we don't look at everybody else and prescribe what they need to do and how they need to give. Yes. 
And two lessons back, we had the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how the early church struggled with this so that some people come and give and some people want to emulate that and be perceived as generous. Yes, they, in their life journey, are not at that stage yet and they struggle. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira as a New Testament counterpart of Achan story from the Old Testament. The same Greek word is used there. So you can't prescribe and make decision for someone else. We struggle each one with ourselves. And we are never beyond this pulling power because we are influenced by that story that if only I got this, I would be happy, as Larry put in the chat. But I need, quote unquote, that new Ferrari. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I need this to make me happy or to feel an achievement, to feel significant or secure or self-worth or impress someone, etc. But back to what we said, if we don't seek the kingdom of God first, we are not seeking it at all. All right, Aaron. It dawned on me that Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. And then there's another scripture that says the love of money is the root of all evil. And it dawned on me that it's not real love. Because I was thinking about the text that says, let all that you do be done in love. First Corinthians, I think, 16, 14. And that's how Jesus lived. And when you love things or whatever it, it may be, like the gentleman was saying, all these guys are putting their lives with dedication to make money. And people, we can be dedicated to all kinds of things. But that if it's not love, towards God, towards other people, then it's an empty, a broken cistern that doesn't satisfy. In the truest sense, you cannot love money because that's not love. Love is only from God and used in godly ways. And so to be changed by God, to live in love, I think is the real point. Yes. And Jesus said it so nicely. You are going to be devoted to the one that you hate and you are going to despise the one that you love. He said it so nicely. It's not a real love. It's only when you emulate the creator, the generous creator, that you find happiness. Michael? The very early Christians, one of the things that was said about them is, look at the Christians, see how they love one another. And we need that as much today as they needed it then. Let us pray. Dear Lord, you know how we all struggle with self-centeredness how much we believe the lie that if only we had this or that, it would make us secure, it would alleviate our fear, our anxiety, our worries, that somehow we would be perceived as important or significant or give us value in the eyes of people around us. And so often we end up trying to impress people that we don't even know or we don't even care about. Help us to emulate you as a loving and generous creator, as a father of all, who gives freely, without regret, even when we abuse and misuse your good gifts, and help us to serve others not only with our material possessions, but with all and varied gifts that you gave to each one of us. Help us to make this world a better place, because we know you and your generous treatment of each one of us, so that people can say, God must be a great God if he created a person like you. We pray in your name. Amen.